most difficult part of my job, Jerry, is that when a patient comes in, I know it's a stroke the minute I come in through that door. You're not allowed to be 99% sure as a doctor. You have to be 100% sure. I can be 99% sure that it's a stroke, but that CT scan gives me that extra 1% to say I'm 100% sure it's a stroke. Unfortunately, we don't necessarily have a magic tablet to give. Hi there, I'm Jerry Stevens. In 2017, I suffered a bleed on my brain, causing a stroke and has changed my life ever since. I thought it would be a good idea to speak to some stroke survivors, their doctors, physiotherapists and cognitive experts that I've met as part of my ongoing recovery. They have some amazing stories to share and advice to give. And over the coming weeks on RTE Radio 1 Extra, we'll explore them with you. Welcome to this edition of the Strokecast. Thanks for joining us. Uh, my guest today is Dr. Zul Khalil, the registrar of one of the busiest stroke hospitals in the Northeast, the Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drada. Zul, thank you so much for coming in to have a chat with us today. Thank you for having me. Sorry. Tell me, Zul, is there such a thing as a typical day for you? I wouldn't think there is. Uh, how do you prepare for a shift? Well, usually I start my day when I come in. Um, I check in with the stroke ward, um, I check in with my whole team um, and um, essentially talk about all the patients that have been admitted. Um, and this team will usually comprise of physiotherapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, dietitian, nursing um, and doctors as well. Um, and essentially what we're trying to find out is, you know, um, amongst the s- stroke patients that have been admitted, you know, uh, what are the problems, what are the issues, what can we address? I start a round then, um, a ward round, because obviously in terms of acute stroke patients, when they do get admitted, it's not necessarily just a stroke they get admitted with. They get a lot of complications, Jerry. Some of them get pneumonia, some of them get kidney infections. So you have to deal with those things as well. Now, on top of that, obviously, I carry the stroke bleep. Um, in the context of if there's an acute stroke, a very acute stroke coming in to ED, my bleep will go off. So I drop everything essentially um, and run literally to the um, ED um, for purposes of trying to reverse or minimize or limit um, any damage from a stroke that would be happening. When your bleeper goes, what goes through your mind? Once upon a time, panic. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I suppose with experience, um, it's not so much panic now. And that is what goes in my mind is um, the steps in which I have to go through for purposes of safely um, either thrombolizing somebody or um, sending somebody up to Beaumont for uh, purposes of thrombectomy. Um, And it is those exact steps. um, I do it nearly every day. Um, Jerry, but every single time I get that bleep in my head is I just redo those steps again. And the reason being is if any of those steps, if there's any delays in any of those steps, then we're delaying, you know, um, reperfusing or delaying um, or making the stroke uh, worse. Um, and therefore, I have to have those steps in my head all so the time. you go into work mode, you go into a, a default work mode absolutely. and you work, work to that plan. Oh, absolutely. Adrenaline kicks in, you know, whatever worries that I had would go away. Um, whatever, you know, if I was tired from the night before, anything like that just basically just goes away and you go into this mode where all you want to do is save someone's brain. Can we clarify for our listeners, Zul, what exactly is a stroke? And what kinds of stroke are there? Well, 
a stroke essentially means an injury to the brain or damage to the brain, um, however you look at it. Um, there's two types of strokes. There's an ischemic type of stroke or a clot type of stroke, and there's a hemorrhagic type of stroke or bleeding type of stroke. Now, the mechanisms in both differ. One essentially means that in terms of damage to the brain, um, it's because you have lack of oxygen. The brain lacks oxygen. And the way that oxygen is delivered to the brain is via your blood vessels. So if you have, let's say, an occlusion of one of the blood vessels to the brain, whether it be clot, um, then therefore you have lack of supply to that part of the brain and therefore that brain will die, that part of the brain will die. In the context of a hemorrhage, again, you're lacking blood supply to that area. And the reason being is a part of the blood vessel to that brain has bled, and therefore the delivery of oxygen towards that area is impaired, and therefore you get damage to that part of the brain. So the two mechanisms are different, but the end result really is the same, and that is lack of oxygen to that part of the brain, and therefore cell death, and therefore damage. Is uh, another word I've heard, you know, people say there are two kinds, uh, a clot or a bleed, but I have heard another uh, term and that is TIA. What exactly is a TIA? So a TIA is termed, um, we call it a TIA, it's, it stands for transient ischemic attack um, and that is a clot as well. Okay, um, but it is a far smaller clot. So a TIA is a stroke that essentially recovers you know, quite quickly within 24 hours. Um, so in terms of what damage or how big the damage happens in that part of the brain, it depends on how big your clot is, I suppose. If you've got a big enough clot that will occlude a big major blood vessel, then you're going to have far bigger damage. Whereas in terms of a TIA, you're going to have a smaller clot that will occlude the blood vessel, maybe not necessarily occluded altogether, maybe just partially occluded, still lacking blood supply to that area. But then transiently then that blood vessel, uh, that, that clot will then also just disperse afterwards and therefore resulting in a smaller amount of damage to that area. Obviously, um, a key piece of equipment when, to- when we talk about stroke is a CT scan. What exactly does a CT scan see? What does it do? For purposes of, let's say, the hyperacute setting, and now we call it a hyperacute setting, meaning that it's the first few hours after having had a stroke, because that's the most, I suppose, valuable hours that we can have to try and limit or even reverse um, damage to the brain. So a CT, when a patient comes in, let's say, and I get a bleep and a patient comes in and I'm running down there and I'm getting a CT scan, all I'm looking for is only whether or not this is a bleed or whether or not this is a clot because the two, um, I suppose, treatments for them uh, differ uh, quite greatly. It is, if you come in within, I suppose, um, that hyperacute setting, it is not surprising and probably what we would be expecting that you would have a normal CT scan, okay? And the reason being is that you're so um, quick I suppose, coming into hospital, that the CT scan hasn't picked up any changes yet. That's what we're looking for, Jerry. We're looking for a normal CT scan. If 
the CT scan is normal, then we can say that potentially the, there's not much damage as yet. Whereas if you see a, an abnormal CT scan already when it comes to a clot type of stroke, then you could say that unfortunately the damage is already done. Okay, so therefore if the damage is already done, there's very little that we can do to try and um, limit that damage or to try and reverse that damage. Um, so we're, what we're looking for on a CT scan when someone comes in is either normal CT or if a CT shows hemorrhage or bleed um, because that is a different pathway altogether. And that's only for the setting of a hyperacute setting, okay, because we're trying to get people in the direction of proper treatment. Now, the CT scan is also done down the line in the acute stroke unit, okay, you know, sometimes the next day, the you know, a few days later. We do that as well just to see the progress of um, the stroke. That was my next question. Can mm. you make a diagnosis without the CT scan or are you pretty much guessing, you know, the CT scan is vital really, isn't it? Yeah, well, what I would say is we diagnose stroke clinically all the time, okay? Um, but in this day and age, you're not allowed to be 99% sure anymore as a doctor. You have to be 100% sure. So if I see a stroke patient downstairs, I can be 99% sure that it's a stroke, but that CT scan gives me that extra 1% to say I'm 100% sure it's a stroke. Um, and if to put it into context, let's say when uh, the first aspirin trials back in 1997, um, I think, um, something like 20% of the patients, so these are stroke patients that was um, put in the trials um, to see whether an aspirin worked when it comes to stroke prevention, something like 20% of the patients um, didn't even have a CT scan back then. Goodness me. Yeah. It, it was clever guesswork. Absolutely. So times Fantastic. have really changed, you know, com in comparison to what it was. Now, a question I get asked regularly, and I put my hand up, I don't know the answer, so I'm going to ask you, <laughs> what is the difference between an MRI scan and a CT scan? What can an MRI see that the CT can't see? It's like your HDTV versus your 4K TV. And even that is probably not a good comparison because the CT scan isn't really HD either. The CT scan is crude greys and whites, you know, and blacks. Um, the MRI is also crude greys and whites and blacks, but it's, I suppose, of a higher definition. It picks up um, dead tissue, I suppose, much easier than the CT scan. Now, compared to other European hospitals, stroke hospitals, where does Ireland fit in? Um, are we up there at the top with uh, procedures and technology? Uh, where do we fit in on the grand scheme of things? We're not doing too bad. Um, now, I go to the European conference, stroke conference annually, and when you go to these conferences annually, it's a different world in Europe um, when it comes to stroke. You know, they they talk a very different language compared to us, Jerry. Now, we're not bad, uh, but we're nowhere near them, I suppose, when it comes to hyperacute care. Now, this is hyperacute care we're talking about. A lot of, I suppose, doctors and nurses are very much interested in the in the hyperacute setting where you're trying to save brain. But what you would see as well in a lot of these conferences that the hyperacute care has, you know, tremendously um, uh, improved over the years. But 
from a rehab perspective, from a psychology perspective, from everything that happens at home perspective, we've not really made a huge amount of difference. What what do you think should we be embracing to uh, to move up the ladder, as it were? What should we be doing? Well, imaging has become something um, that Europe has, I suppose, embraced. Um, you know, you talk about CT scans. Um, you know, Europe are already doing MRI scans at the door. You know, um, we, we, there are other, I suppose, modalities of imaging um, that Europe are doing far more than we are. It's not that we do not have the um, availability, or I suppose the availability is limited to certain hospitals. Um, but what I would say is that Europe has gone to, towards the direction of imaging as compared to time. Germans have been doing this for a while now. Uh, they have ambulances, and I think UK have, have the UK have one ambulance that they're trying to pilot um, at the moment. But what they tend to do is they have a scanner in the ambulance. And what they do um, is they scan the patient in the ambulance, um, and then the scans are then linked to somebody uh, either neurologist or radiologist somewhere, they look at the scans. Therefore, they're thrombolizing, thrombecting um, already in the ambulance. And the thing about stroke is that things have changed quite dramatically year by year. Um, over the last 10 years, I would say things have changed quite dramatically. Time windows have increased. Um, we're using more imaging. So I suspect that things will continue to change. And the direction of having a scanner in the ambulance may or may not be the route that we'll be taking. Okay. Uh, realistically, as we're talking about time, realistically, mm. what is the time frame to deal with a stroke? Is there really a golden hour, as it were, a golden hour of a window of opportunity to save a lot of a person, you know, a lot of uh, who they were before they had their stroke? I suppose there is no golden hour. Um, the faster you get to a patient, the faster you reperfuse somebody's brain, the better it is. The less damage that it will, um, that the less damage that will happen. We have a time window with regards to this clot busting drug or thrombolysis, is what we call it. So our time window is four and a half hours from onset. So if you, if a patient comes in within four and a half hours of symptom onset, then we can give this clot-busting drug to basically try and thin out all the clot that's trying to um, damage the brain, I suppose, or trying to occlude uh, the blood vessel to the brain. And that is from a purpose of thrombolysis. For purposes of thrombectomy, it used to be the time window was 12 hours, but now it's gone towards 24 hours. So again, that's uh, you know only a recent change within the, the last year or so. Again, it's if you imagine Jerry, four and a half hours from symptom onset, or even twelve hours or twenty-four hours from a symptom onset, it's not a huge amount of time. So the majority of our strokes actually attend hospital beyond that time window. So unfortunately, when they arrive to hospital, if they well, the damage is done. The, Absolutely. Ho the horse has bolted. Absolutely. So the damage is done and there's not much more that we can do for in a hyperacute setting. So uh, one thing for sure is that, you know, if you imagine somebody, you know, at home 
having a stroke maybe it may be mild like you know some weakness here something like that oh you know they say oh i'll be fine don't worry about it you know uh, it'll go away you know that's another half an hour gone another hour gone and then suddenly you know before the you know it it's you know they they go to their gp first or they go ask a neighbor first or something to that effect it keeps on going and going and going and by the time they arrive to hospital unfortunately the time window is gone well i actually feel very lucky Zul, because from the time i didn't feel well hmm to the first responders, to the ambulance, to actually meeting you, it was 45 minutes, 50 minutes, I think. So I think I was very lucky. You know, there was more of me to save. (laughs) Very good. Now, I have to say that um, things have improved dramatically when it comes to time. And I think that's just awareness, awareness of the public, awareness of the paramedics, awareness of everybody, really, um, that they have to get to us as quickly as possible. Well, the FAST campaign has been hugely successful. Everybody I know has seen the ad. They Mm. understand what it's for. And they're always, you know, they're looking for the drop in the side of your face. Mm. They're familiar with symptoms. So I think we are more aware in Ireland about stroke and, you know, symptoms of it and what we should do. Yeah, and it reflects in my job um, in the sense that, you know, I get more bleeps now um, as compared to previously. So therefore, you know, the bleep will go off only, I suppose, if we're in that time window, if a patient comes in within that time window. So the more bleeps I get, you know, the happier I am is essentially because people are coming in faster. You have more to work with, more to repair, more of your procedures will work faster and do what they should do. Now, I know procedures are improving all the time Mm. and it's quite a common operation now, uh, which is the thrombectomy you've been been talking about. It's an amazing use of mini or micro uh, technology and indeed Magella has been talking to us, one of our Mm. stroke survivors, and indeed she had the thrombectomy. Can you explain to us um, in not too technical terms, sure. but, but do do tell us how it works. Yeah. Um, how do you begin a thrombectomy? How, how does it start? Like I was saying earlier, Jerry, it's all about the clot and a, a clot occluding a blood vessel. So one way of trying to get rid of that clot from occluding the blood vessel is trying to thin it out, okay, with the thrombolysis, um, with this clot-busting drug, okay. But if it's too big, if it's very, very big, that unfortunately, this clot-blasting drug will not necessarily work. So if it's too big, it needs to be taken out. So what the guys in Beaumont do, they literally puncture your femoral artery, which is just in the groin area, okay? And they thread a wire all the way up to the brain. Um, Along the way, obviously, they image it and they're, they're guided by imaging. Can I ask you, is the patient awake? Are they aware or are they sedated? They're usually sedated. However, what I would say, Jerry, is that if somebody had a big clot like this, um, they wouldn't necessarily be aware anyway because their stroke would be so big. Okay, so these are patients that would have an extremely um, dense stroke. And therefore, to be honest with you, they probably wouldn't be, they wouldn't be aware, they wouldn't even remember, you know, what would have happened. Um, So, um, you know, sedation can be given, but not necessarily is it really required, um, if you get what I mean. Um, So they thread this wire all the way up to the brain. It's looked at, I suppose, it's imaged along the way just to be sure, you know, that they're going the right way, you know, (laughs) and you're going in the right artery. Um, And once they reach the clot, they pull it out. 
there is only two centres in in Ireland. Uh, Beaumont run, I suppose, most of the thrombectomies, and they're very busy. They're extremely busy. I mean, talking to them up above, you know, they will probably definitely do at least one a day. Um, so it is very very busy. We've we've had our our procedures. Um, you've done your job, Sul. You know, you've mm-hmm. you've done a good job. When the patient is discharged, is it very common for a stroke to reoccur? Well, by the point of discharge after having had a stroke, generally we would have worked you up, what we would call worked you up. Um, and that is whenever a stroke patient comes into hospital, um, there's two parts to stroke management. One is the therapist. Um, and they will deal with what has happened in terms of what damage has happened and they'll start rehabilitating. And our part as the stroke team is that trying to find out the cause of your stroke and therefore giving you medication or treatment that will try and avoid um, another stroke from happening. Can there be recurrence? Absolutely. Unfortunately, not everything in terms of our medications are 100%. Um, There is chances that you will get a recurrent event. Yes, absolutely. But I suppose the risk is less or your risks will be modified uh, and therefore your risks will be less um, likely to develop um, a stroke. Now, we as doctors, we pretend that we know a lot about the brain. We know a lot about the brain in terms of what it does to your arms, legs, what it does to your speech, to your swallow. Um, That part, you know, we we know a lot about. But what happens from the psychology part of things, the anxiety side of things, you know, all those things we don't necessarily understand. One thing for sure is that, and it, it is quite natural that, if you have had a stroke, and you may have had experience with this, Jerry, is that, you know, you've had a stroke, um, you're now very scared of developing another one, you go home, you suddenly feel, you slept on your arm the the night before, you wake up and your arm's tingling. And you panic. And you panic and you think that you're having another stroke. We see this quite commonly. um, And patients will present to us again, you know, thinking that they may have had another stroke. Now, this is a natural Uh, reaction um, for you Um, do we is there much that we can do from a from a medical perspective unfortunately not necessarily much Um, everybody who comes in with regards to anxiety or depression they look to a doctor to hopefully give them a magic tablet of some sort that will you know take it away now you know, it's a natural, it's a natural rea- reaction. You've had a stroke and therefore you're anxious of any symptom from here on end. So therefore, unfortunately, we don't necessarily have a magic tablet to give. Uh, and that's why I suppose we, we were quite, ha- you know, um, happy or delighted that um, we, were, we managed to get the cognitive rehab group um, started. We got psychology groups started is because we know that there's a lack of anything beyond our doors. So the minute you get discharged from us, you know, that's it. Goodbye. With stroke, there are hidden injuries, I think maybe might be the best way of saying it, that you do have to deal with over time. And they may not be, I reckon actually, I do think they are there when you leave. 
but you don't realise it. Mm. But I, I do think it's fantastic that, um, you know, doctors and the, the whole system is beginning to realise this and give a much longer term uh, support. I have to ask you, what is the hardest part of your job? The most difficult part of my job, Jerry, is that when a patient comes in, and I know it's a stroke, the minute I come in through that door, um, and you hear that, oh, she was last seen well 24 hours ago or two days ago, um, and you look at the CT scan and you see damage done, and unfortunately my hands are very much tied uh, in this context of I've the really... Wi- the window has closed. The window has closed and I have nothing more to offer. Um, and that is the hardest part of my job because that patient will then unfortunately be living with a severe disability. Um, no matter what I do, no matter what medication I give, unfortunately, if it's to that degree already, there's very little more that I can do. So the other side of that, how do, how do you step back from that? How do you unwind? How do you step off? Um, I suppose it's been all the years of training. Um, for some reason or other, I am able to switch off. Um, that's one thing. Um, I run um, and that kind of relaxes me when I do run. Uh, it's great for the mind and people who run they 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 all they keep saying is it's it's great for the mind you know it, it just recharges re- you, it recharges you, you yeah. relaxes you i have four kids at home so that in itself <laughs> <laughs> that's your other job <laughs> absolutely so that in itself uh, keeps it uh, keeps everything off my mind um but i don't know jerry i i'm able to switch off um and i suppose you will find that most doctors will. We tend to try and dissociate ourselves from our patients, probably because of this reason, probably because that if we don't necessarily dissociate ourselves from our patients, that we're not be able, we will not be able to come in the next day. Um, and I think a lot of people will understand that because they will sometimes you know, meet a doctor who they feel is you know, not necessarily very personal with them. And maybe that's part of our training. Maybe, you know, you know, subconsciously we've been trained that way, that we have to kind of keep a little bit of a, a distance as so that I can come in the next day. Well, you've, you, tomorrow's keep coming. You've got to keep going to work. That That is very understandable. Probably something many people wouldn't have thought about. Mm-hmm. Um, but thank you for sharing that with us. Where would you like to see Irish hospitals in the next four to five years, Zul? What would be realistic goals from the hospital's point of view to, to move up the ladder? Yeah. You see, like I said, Jerry, the stroke has evolved so much within the last 10 years, um, so much. You know, at one point, you know, if you had an ischemic or hemorrhagic stroke, you come in and unfortunately, you know, there's very little that you can do, okay? Um, but within the last 10 years, at least anyway, um, it's it's had so much change in terms of what you can do now. The next four and five years, I suspect that we'll be moving towards better imaging and treating patients based on imaging versus treating patients based on time. So remember I was talking about this four and a half hour window. The reason why 
there is that time window is because all the studies showed that that time window was the golden opportunity where you could thrombolize someone. But if you push imaging into it, uh, in if you, like I said to you, if you have a CT scan that um, is already showing damage, then unfortunately the damage is already done. Now we've got better imaging, we've got perfusion imaging, we've got MRI imaging. So we can see on these modalities of imaging whether or not the damage is already done or whether the damage is salvageable. So in that context of things, I suspect that stroke will evolve even further in the next four or five years. And that is that at one point, probably we may not even have a time window anymore. And what will happen is that we'll treat a patient depending on how their CT perfusion or their MRI perfusion looks like. That sounds great. Dr. Zul Khalil, Registrar with the Lourdes Hospital in Drotted. Thank you so much for having a chat with me today. And thank you for helping us on our stroke stories as well. Um, continued success and uh, determination in your work. Thank you so much. You're very welcome, Jay. Next week on The Strokecast, clinical nurse, specialist in stroke, Fiona Connaughton. It's all about team. It's about the paramedics getting people in, the telephone room setting off those bleeps. It's about the lab staff, the radiology staff. It's about all of those people within the stroke pathway working together to make this work. Get in touch on Twitter at Strokecast IRL or on Facebook. The Strokecast is produced and presented by Jerry Stevens. The executive producer is Al Dunn. It's created by Unique Media.